You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com. So Johnson was uh, aware of Eisenhower's support uh, in Texas. And of course, um, Alan Shivers, who was governor of Texas, a very strong and a very powerful governor of Texas, uh, with strong following, uh, bolted uh, the party nominee in 1952 and supported Eisenhower, and he carried the state uh, handily. So Johnson was well aware of the of the basic political support uh, that Eisenhower had. The fact that he was a general didn't worry uh, uh, Mr. Johnson at all. That word, Speaker Rayburn. Uh, Speaker Rayburn did not like Eisenhower, uh, did, not, did not think any general should be president of the United States. And never got over that, really. <laughs> he was civil uh, to President Eisenhower and got along well with him, but was never effusive uh, in his relationship with him or in his praise of him. Uh, I have always, everyone says that Eisenhower as a general didn't know anything about politics. My own view uh, is and always has been that anyone who comes up through the ranks in the military, as Eisenhower did, is by nature, by definition, a superb politician. And they are. By the time they get to be a four-star general, uh, they have been through the ropes uh, of the political arena, admittedly in a little different way from most people uh, visualize it. But nevertheless, uh, they are practiced politicians. And Eisenhower was. Eisenhower, I think, read the mood of the country. You know, he came to office in '52. This was right after, right after World War II. This country was at the height of its prosperity, the height of its productivity. The rest of the world was still in shambles. They were rebuilding the, all of Europe, Japan. Uh, there was really no competition in the marketplaces of the world for Americans' goods and services. Uh, there was no great demand uh, for uh, Eisenhower uh, to be too activist uh, a president. And uh, I think he understood the mood of the country and the times in which he was over which he was presiding, and he acted accordingly. Um, he, he was also blessed, very frankly, with uh, the unique situation in which President, uh, which President Johnson, or then Majority Leader Johnson, and Speaker Rayburn found themselves. Johnson, by this time, was the undisputed leader of the Senate. Mr. Rayburn was unquestionably uh, the power in the House of Representatives. Uh, he uh, he was absolutely unique in the hold and support that he had in the House of Representatives. I don't think there was there was not a bill that could be passed that he didn't want passed. There wasn't a bill that he wanted passed that didn't pass. Uh, in spite of divergent views of his committee chairman, uh, any time the speaker really wanted something. He got it. Uh, I don't think there's a man in the history of, of American politics that had as much power as Speaker Rayburn had. Uh, he never abused it. He never used it selfishly. Uh, but unquestionably, uh, he could deliver. So what, what President Eisenhower found himself uh, needing to talk to just two people. He'd get, President, he'd get uh, Majority Leader Johnson and Speaker Rayburn uh, down to the White House. 
they would agree on what uh, program they would support. And uh, he would rest uh, secure in the knowledge that uh, they'd deliver. Welcome to this episode of John Connolly, the advisor to presidents. This is the third part of um, a show. We, we, we covered the issues that went on uh, with the Iran hostage uh, situation, but we wanted to, to let you see the John Connolly at work with presidents because he really was a person of an enormous stature over his, what, 50-year career. And here he is with President Nixon. And what you may not know, like a backstory here, is that he came over to help President Nixon um, and I, I've always said that blows a hole in the Chanel affair nonsense because there's no way that he came over to help Richard Nixon without Lyndon Johnson knowing about it. But uh, anyway, he, he, he comes over, becomes an advisor to Nixon, and he impresses Richard Nixon so much that if, if truth be told, if Nixon thought he could have gotten him confirmed, he would have been the vice president that replaced Spiro Agnew, not Gerald Ford. The problem was, of course, that Connolly had been a Democrat who comes over to the Republican side, and that's got him with enemies everywhere because the Democrats don't like him because he switches parties, and the Republicans don't trust him. And that shows in 1980 uh, when he tried to run for president, and he only got one delegate despite millions of dollars you know, that he had at, at his disposal. So what I thought I'd do, well, let's listen to this, is just before the State of the Union. He, he's calling uh, President uh, Nixon, and they're going to talk about... Uh, you know, the next term and everything that's going on. And uh, and so it's an interesting phone call. Secretary Connick, sir. Mr. President. Hi, John. How are you, sir? How are you? I hope I'm not interrupting you. No, sir. Well, I'm just meeting with my staff. I just stepped there. We're just talking about how we how we reconstitute ourselves, what ideas we can give you to solve some of the problems this country faces. <laughs> I don't know if we're going to come up with anything, but yeah, I can talk to you about doing so. I hope you will ask Ms. Nixon to forgive uh, us for not being out there last night. Oh, goodness. Uh, you shouldn't have uh, well, I even considered it. all day, and then we were crying, and it was such bad weather. Oh, hell. down in my back, and I just thought we no. wouldn't do it, and I didn't realize it was going to no. be not on your life. Can you please ask her to forgive us? No, no, no. We didn't, ex- they were, uh, we didn't expect uh, people to come, John. Well, we not like real that. bad when we somewhere, you know what I mean, it was just a, uh, just a few were able to come anyway, and I just tried but uh, it was just great. Let me ask you uh, one question that I won't bother you long. <laughs> uh, I'm working in the State of the Union this week, you know, and I, I just talked to John Ehrlichman before noon. He said that he talked to you briefly about this plan on how you added and so forth, and that, that he felt that you felt that it was uh, all right to handle it on this basis of sort of trial ballooning. In other words, that it, in order to preempt the issue, as I understand it, that I would try to meet this week with McElroy. You, you and I, and Richardson would meet with McElroy. Uh, that we would all, we would have the the gover- intergovernmental committee, uh, committee right, and, uh, uh, chaired by the vice president. Yeah, I think by Agnew, right. that he'd get them together uh, first to next week, and so forth before the State of the Union, and you'd be present in Richardson again and float the idea there with them and ask them to think about it. Right. In the State of the Union, I would just refer to the 
sound all right to you? I think it sounds, I think it sounds like a very plausible uh, and intelligent way to handle it. All right. Because I just don't think, Mr. President, you want to go up with any kind of legislation right now. Yeah. Yeah. Ties you down without any any accruing benefits. Right. I think it's an issue. You can capture the issue. You can talk about it in general terms and get all of the, the value and none of the disadvantages because yeah. you don't tie yourself down to specifics. Yeah. But, and I would sure let them float it. And I think the Vice President's idea yeah. through, through that advisory yeah. council and their government relations is a damn good one. Now, we will... Uh, use your name in it, uh, but uh, That's right. then you at some time will just say, well, yes, I'm studying it, and my sure. people are Absolutely. studying it, and it's a very, it's something has to be done, but we don't want to, we, uh, another thing, argument, I think, John, you should make to everybody, is to say, look, we have a very practical thing, and that you and the president talk about this, and that we don't want to send down to that committee with all it has on its plate a piece of legislation that is for pure political reasons. We want to, we know they're not ready for it yet, and we want to think about it more, and they get a chance to think about it and then send it on. Doesn't that make sense to Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Because uh, Wilbur's going to have the, uh, you know, his own uh, revenue sharing. He's got to have health. He's got to have the, the gold bill. He's got all these things. Yeah, and I think that's a good reason for uh, so do I. Now, in terms of the State of the Union itself, then uh, that really doesn't isn't going to leave us too much in, in the way of something really quite new. Now I wonder what you feel whether that probably isn't all right in a sense. My yes, but, uh, or tell me what you think. If, I think I, I've right. been having them try to scrub up something new, but I haven't seen anything that's worth a damn. I don't. I don't think if you can't have something with real substance and real meat in it, I wouldn't try to. I I would just. Uh, uh, in general terms, I hadn't thought in terms of language, but talk about this as a period of uh, uh, of consolidation. Right. We've uh, we've undertaken great changes in the domestic economic front, the international economic front, the international diplomatic front, and and frankly, uh, this is going to be a year of expansion and consolidation. Yeah. And we can ask the Congress now to act on those things that we already presented before. Right. Reorganization of health and welfare would see really go for in a sense. Welfare reform, health, government reorganization, revenue sharing. We have everything there already. That's right. That, that is needed. You see, right. uh, not a, uh, uh, not to mention, of course, the uh, the cleaning up of the international monetary thing. Right. So I, I really think that we say now, uh, here it is, Congress, and uh, and there really isn't. Uh, also, another thing that concerns me is that we mustn't create the impression that there's a bold new scheme to solve every problem. Right. There really isn't, is there? No, there isn't. No, and I, and I think you've taken it. I think you have to, to, to lend credence to what you've been saying, that you've, you've, that you've taken bold steps in the international field, right. winding down the war, the trip to Moscow, China, the international monetary front, the international economic, as well as the domestic economic front. You have to take the position that you've taken these steps. But now now it's, it's a question of... Uh, of cleaning up your plate in effect before right. in the Congress and of and of stabilizing and making the initiatives function that you've already uh, right. announced right and right. that this is a period of uh, of expansion and consolidation and right and, uh, or whatever other words we can come up with well as soon as I begin there I'll be get something by Thursday or Friday I'll uh, like to have you take a look oh, the language is as important as anything else it's a like one on I think do you is what you have in your back a muscle spasm Yes, sir. It's it just uh, ever had it before? Uh, oh, not particularly. No, I used to. I always am. You wouldn't uh, when uh, Lyland comes down on Wednesday. You wouldn't like for him to take a little. Uh, he 
he's this great osteopath, you know, I use him every week. You want to take a crack at it? Well, I sure do if, if I've still got it. I, well, I, no, I no, 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 the point is, do it if you don't have it even, because oh, all right. what it is, is a, uh, this is the best Rockefeller uses them, I use them, Mitchell does, and he is the probably, he's the great one in the country, he's an MD too. Uh, but uh, you bet I'll, I'll be in, uh, and so is the Chief Justice. <laughs> uh, well, that's great. He's I'll a bad. Be in good company anyway. That's right. Okay. <laughs> I'll have him call you and make an appointment. I'll be wonderful. Thank you. And now to commemorate this event, we have as our special guests tonight the Raycon of Singers. It's very difficult to describe them. Most of you have heard them, television, radio, or on records. Uh, they make very few personal appearances, but uh, they felt that this was one of those occasions when it would be appropriate for them to do so. I think we could perhaps say that their success has been indicated by the great number of their records that have become bestsellers. Uh, we could, in a sense, say that they are to music what the Reader's Digest has been in print. Everything they touch turns to gold, gold Grammys. But in any event, Ray Conniff and his uh, very famous uh, choral group will now entertain us. And if the music is square, it's because I like it square. President Nixon, stop bombing human beings, animals, and vegetation. You go to church on Sundays and pray to Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ were here tonight, you would not dare drop another bomb. Bless the Berrigans and bless Daniel Ellsberg. Thank you very much and good evening. I want you all to know what a wonderful thrill it is for us to be performing for you here at the White House. I assure you, Mr. President, the first part of the program was as much a shock to me as it was to you. say is I must apologize. I, uh, I guess I'll have to 
make sure from now on that my singers listen to your speeches. They don't seem to know what's going on. Uh, Well, if I can get over that one. There were boos and shouts of throw the bum out. Bob Hope said shameful. Billy Graham was described as purple. The scene was the White House, where old friends and wealthy Republicans gathered last night to help President Nixon celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Reader's Digest. Bernard Shaw reports. In the East Room, President Nixon began introducing the entertaining Ray Conniff singers by saying, if the music is square, it's because I like it square. I think we could perhaps say that their success has been indicated by the great number of their records that have become bestsellers. Uh, We could, in a sense, say that they are to music what the Reader's Digest has been in print. Everything they touch turns to gold. No one knew that Canadian-born Carol Ferrasi had a concealed protest banner. President Nixon, stop bombing human beings, animals, and vegetation. You go to church on Sundays and pray to Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ were here tonight, you would not dare drop another bomb. Bless the Berrigans and bless Daniel Ellsberg. Miss Ferrasi sang through the first number, but then Ray Conniff asked her to leave. The camera left, too. White House ground rules laid down beforehand permitted filming only of the first number. Later at a Virginia motel, Miss Ferrasi told CBS News... One of the women asked me, um, how could I come to somebody's private home and uh, do such a thing, you know, create a fuss? And I said to her, you know, I'm sure that... uh, when uh, in the time of Jesus Christ, there were lots of people that said to him, look, you know, if you don't like it here, why don't you uh, go back up to uh, heaven with daddy up there and, you know, uh, just leave us alone. Um, That's, you know, we've got to change it. And that's what I'm doing. Miss Ferrasi says she intentionally joined the group to stage the protest. A very shocked Ray Conniff said some singers cried with embarrassment. And President Nixon praised the group, telling Conniff not to worry that this sort of thing happens. Martha Mecho said Miss Ferrasi, quote, ought to be torn limb from limb. Bernard Shaw, CBS News, the White House. This was the scene at the White House last night as President Nixon presented the Medal of Freedom to DeWitt Wallace and his wife, the founders of Reader's Digest. It was the pleasant part of the evening for the president and his guests. The unpleasant part came earlier during the entertainment. When the Ray Conniff singers came on, one of the singers, Carol Paracci, made a short speech about Vietnam. The guests, including Bob Hope and the Reverend Billy Graham, didn't like it, and there were shouts of throw her out. President Nixon, stop bombing human beings, animals, and vegetation. You go to church on Sundays and pray to Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ were here tonight, you would not dare drop another bomb. Bless the Berrigans and bless Daniel Ellsberg.
Thank you very much. Good evening. say is I must apologize. I, uh, I guess I'll have to make sure from now on that my singers listen to your speeches. They don't seem to know what's going on. Uh, I... Miss Faraci said she made the speech because she thought it would get national attention. It did. A lot of people may have forgotten about the situation with, with the Raycon of singers and the, the lady that, uh, that uh, interrupted that event. Uh, there was a ton of famous people in the audience that night at the White House. As they said, Bob Hope, Billy Graham, uh, a lot of celebrities. It was a big event because of Reader's Digest was being honored, and the owners of Reader's, Reader's Digest were going to get the Presidential Medal of Freedom. And, uh, and so um, it was a big deal, and this was a total shock. As you're getting ready to hear, we've got, we've got a report from Sunday morning, CBS News Sunday morning, that is going to introduce you to the lady, Carol Farachi, that did this. And uh, and she's kind of a character, I thought, after listening to the to the show. But the one person who was not in the audience that night was John Conley, because John Conley was ill. He had the flu or some kind of cold. They'll talk about it in this phone call. Uh, but President Nixon's going to call him the night after this happens, and he'll talk to Mrs. Conley to see how he's doing, and you know they'll chat up a little bit. And it's interesting to hear her talk because she's a she's a formidable lady on her own. But uh, And then he'll talk to John Conley, and they'll get some advice on various issues. And then he'll talk about this situation with the Raycon of singers. And anyway, it gives you a feel for, you know, that, that this was a person that these presidents, that Richard Nixon trusted. And he, and, and he liked to get advice from Conley and hear his opinion. And so he had a tremendous amount of influence, uh, both with President, obviously with President Johnson, who we covered in our last episode, and as you can see, his his uh, he built a, a, quite the relationship with Richard Nixon, and this stuff about the Iran uh, Iran hostage situation and whether or not he was working with Ronald Reagan, I, I just don't believe that Ronald Reagan knew. But if there if there is some credence to this story, and I and I you know I'm not one. This is not the Chenault affair. This Ben Barnes is a pretty credible guy. My guess is is maybe Conley thought this was a way to, to ingratiate himself in with Ronald Reagan, get his foot in the door, and see if he couldn't build that same kind of relationship that he had with Richard Nixon, that he had with LBJ. You never know, because Conley was a pretty formidable man, and I think all the evidence does show you that. The Vietnam War was raging half a world away, but one night in 1972, the White House hosted a gala complete with an easy-listening group of singers for entertainment. Mo Rocca introduces us to the woman who stole the show. And so tonight in the White House, in this room, in this company... The date? January 28, 1972. A monthly university in print. The occasion? A White House gala celebrating the 50th anniversary of Reader's Digest magazine. The entertainment that night? The wholesome Ray Conniff singers. And if the music is square, it's because I like it square. <laughs> but what happened next was anything but square. President Nixon, stop bombing human beings, animals, and vegetation. You go to church on Sundays and pray to Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ were here tonight, you would not dare drop another bomb. 
Bless the Berrigans and bless Daniel Ellsberg. Could you see the president? Oh, yes. He sat right in front of me in the front row. Did you look at him? Yes, I did. I was speaking to him. You looked right at him? Yes. He was like this, <laughs> frozen. <laughs> he had a frozen smile. He did not know what to do. The woman who stunned President Richard Nixon and the star-studded audience with a plea to end the war in Vietnam was Canadian-born Carol Ferrasi. I folded up the sign and I stood there and I thought, mm, okay, let's see what happens now. And he gave the downbeat for Ma, he's making eyes at me. Could it have been a more perfect song? No. When the music stopped, Ray Conniff apologized, and Ferrasi was asked to leave. She did so graciously. The war had been going on under the Johnson administration. So what specifically was your objection to Richard Nixon's handling of it? My objection was he could have stopped it at any time. And he kept telling people there were all these reasons why it couldn't happen. We were winning. It was just one lie after another. We could have gotten out of that war the next minute. Only because of him and people like him were we still doing these atrocities to children and women and the planet. Carol Ferrasi says that standing up to the leader of the free world came naturally to a girl who'd grown up in a rough Toronto neighborhood. Was this characteristic of you? Always. My whole life. I've been in trouble my whole life. <laughs> but the right kind of trouble. I think or, so. Right? Yes, I yeah. think so. As John Lewis said, the good trouble, right? The good trouble. And you didn't surprise yourself there. It just came naturally to you. Yeah. Would you have considered yourself political at that point? No. No, I just cared about people's feelings. And it was, I knew how wrong that was. As for that strong sense of right and wrong, Farasi says that was instilled in her during Sunday school at the Salvation Army. I was a member of the Army of Christ on the planet, and I, it was my duty to protect people and to help as much as I could, and I did. Any friend of mine didn't have to worry about being beat up going or coming from school because I protected everybody. I was a mean little kid. I could beat anybody up. <laughs> Ferrasi had been a staple on variety shows in the 1960s. A sought-after backup singer, she'd performed alongside the Smothers Brothers, Johnny Mathis, even Frank Sinatra. What did you do with Frank Sinatra? One of his albums. Which one? Uh, the Christmas album. But the incident in the East Room made her a headliner. One of the women asked me, um, how could I come to somebody's private home and uh, create a fuss? And I said to her, you know, I'm sure that in the time of Jesus Christ, there were lots of people that said to him, look, you know, if you don't like it here, why don't you uh, go back up to uh, heaven with Daddy up there and, you know, uh, just leave us alone? Um, that's, you know, we've got to change it. And that's what I'm doing. The 
This is the front page. Of the LA Times. It's a, it was headlines all over the world. I mean, this is a banner headline. Yeah. Singer stuns Nixon guests. Uh-huh. Woman assails war policies from stage in White House. Right? Did you expect this kind of press coverage? No, actually I didn't. <laughs> I hadn't thought beyond what I was going to do. President Nixon stopped bombing human beings, animals, and vegetation. Her one-night-only run at the White House changed her life forever. The calls that came into the house, I mean, every two minutes that phone rang, and a lot of it was, we know where you live, you won't last the night. We're going to come and kill you. There were a few rah-rah for you, but a lot of it was, you're in deep trouble. How did you deal with the threats? Well, I hung up on on a lot of them. You know, how do you deal with it? You don't. Today at age 81, mm-hmm. Carol Ferrasi hopes what she did that night. There you go. Grab a corner. <laughs> 51 years ago still resonates. Who do you hope hears your message or is inspired by what you did 50 years ago? People like me, ordinary people like me, who realize their voice is just as powerful as anybody else's. All they have to do is use it. You make it sound simple. It is. Duh. It is. Speak your mind. You're getting Mrs. Connolly, please. Uh, the wife of the Secretary of Treasury. Surely, thank you. Hello. Mr. President, I have Mrs. Connolly. Yeah. President. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. I just wanted to call to see how John was. Has uh, he got a little touch of flu? Well, I don't know whether he has a little touch of flu or just a little upset stomach, but he's just been... Uh, been miserable. Huh? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did it hit you, too? Yes, sir. <laughs> oh, gosh. It's a good thing we were with you last night. Yeah, it? yeah. He hated to miss your dinner party. Oh, well, that's... Uh, that's uh, listen, that, we didn't care about that. Uh, we they, did. We but did. You had, a, you'd had a lot of fun, but uh, they... Uh, but uh, I heard it yesterday at noon when uh, we had this firing in. But uh, it's probably not only that damn flu that's going around. You know, it's uh, it uh, Ryland was telling me that uh, in Dakota that's really a, a, an epidemic proportions. So it's and it hits in various places. Well, gosh, I'm so sorry to hear it. Well, you're sorry. So what are you doing? You just staying and staying close to home then? Uh huh. We we just stayed in the bed. That's good. That's John, good. John's right here in a way. Yeah, I'll talk to him. Oh. Yeah, I hope I don't. But didn't wake you up. No, 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 yeah. you didn't. Yeah. You're very sweet. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Good morning, sir. Well, they failed you, huh? They. <laughs> no. Uh, just a little. I don't know what the heck it is. Yeah. I, yeah. First, it was. You've got a upset stomach. I was up all night, night for last, and uh, yeah. Then that was after your Richmond. Uh... No, well, it was the second night after that. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. And then I, yesterday though, I got a headache, started aching all over. And That's it. I was afraid maybe. Takash, uh, it must be. Uh, no, I don't the, know is is uh, anybody taking a look, or you don't? No, no. We uh, just, you usually just wear try to wear it out. Hell, I've had them looking, Mr. President, for years. They don't help. I never found one that did any good. That thing is that the, that uh, have exactly the same idea. You just sort of wear it out, and uh, but it's uh, there is an epidemic, you know, the damn stuff going around. Well, I didn't around. know it till I got yep. yesterday afternoon. Yep. Got feeling bad. Talked to the girls in the office, right. and, they, and they told me. I talked to. Uh, talked to Ryland about it on Wednesday, and he said it's in New York. It's just about one out of three. And at this dinner last night, we had for the Wallaces, uh, you know, everybody wants to come to the White House. Twelve 
out of a hundred canceled uh, the day before. You don't mean. I mean, these are people that are his intimate friends. You know, they didn't cancel. We knew they'd been planning. They'd bought their dresses, their gowns, and they told their friends. Well, I had the flu, and this is from New York. This is from New York. So I just hate to hear it. But, any, but anyway, you're doing well, John, with the market. What the hell's happened to that damn thing? Do you see what's happened to it yesterday? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, it's strong, it's, Mr. President. It, uh, and uh, Keith Funston came through the line, you know, the former head of it. And, uh, no, not Keith Funston. He did, but Don Regan, you know, of yeah, uh, the big right. firm. And uh, I said, Don, I said, it's a good thing I got you here in Washington. The market went up, and he says, look, he says, you tell John Conley, and he, I'm going to tell you, don't you worry about the market. He says, that market's strong. I said, what, what about this dip it had? He said, that's just, that's the way the market is. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? That, uh, he, he was very, very strong. He yeah, said, I, think it, I think the market's strong. Yeah, but 25 million shares, which, of course, that seems to be very significant to those fellows, when they, because they think folks are getting into the market again, maybe. But, well, well, I think they must be. But the main thing we have to figure is this. Don't worry about it, you know. It's a, this worrying about up and down that I think is foolish. That's what's killing all, everybody around here all the time. Yeah. We, yeah. we wait every hour. And we, That's right. And we say. The market goes up or down. We well, and also not only the market, but everything else. We worry about well, what was the CPI this That's week right. and That's how much was on us insured unemployment. And That's right. Were retail sales up or down and so forth. And uh, you remember old Churchill's uh, talking about popularity. He says, if I ever, if I ever made my decisions uh, based on the, uh, took our, by taking my temperature with a gallop pole every every week he says i couldn't be prime minister well he's right i mean you can't do that right well i'm just sorry to hear it and them you know sitting well, up here we missed your when you'd like to be down there and <laughs> down home but uh well, we'll uh it's one of those things hey, we'll i i don't feel too bad this morning oh i you do you sound bad you sound you, well i mean you i can tell i you know you got it you're all you've got some stuff i'm stopped, stopped up but other than yeah that, well, that's right it'll it'll pass it'll pass and you'll feel feel miserable and think and think you're going to die but nobody ever died of the damn stuff <laughs> i'm going to incidentally i'm going to meet malvina whitman today you know we got a we got this woman who was on the council's staff and's on the price commission that yes. it's fine i think it's a great idea that they say she's pretty too is she yeah so i said that sold me when stein told me that i said all right we'll put her on the council well that's great uh, <laughs> she's has she checked out pretty well very well well the thing that i had not known that i had not known first they Stein was high on her because she's been on the staff, had been on the staff as a senior economist for a year, and had been so good they pointed her to the Price Commission. She's a she's the wife of a Pittsburgh professor. But the other thing that checked out is that I learned for the first time that she is the daughter of Dr. Paul von Neumann. Was the great nu nuclear physicist and yes. and was a member of the Atomic Energy Commission and of course a, a, a major author on economics, mathematics, one of the great geniuses. And they say that she is just as smart as he is. And I remember when he used to brief us during the Eisenhower administration. He is one of the most impressive men in the world. So uh, you know what I mean. Not that you always take people on the basis of who their fathers was, no, but, but but this fellow, I just I just know you know she, this this woman is. She isn't just a woman. She's no, she's not supposed to be one of the really able women of, of, of in this business. Stein said an interesting thing, though. He said, uh, "I said, well, uh, what about this?" He said, "Well, I says I got to be now. I be very honest with you." I says, "Once you get Malvina Whitman, he said uh, she'd be number one among all the women you do in this business. 
and then you have to go down a hundred before you get another one that would even rank number two. So she's apparently one you know just outstanding. So uh, anyway, well, I, I'm I'm glad. I, I don't I don't know her. I've, yeah. uh, we've talked neither about neither by. I you know I'm I'm a I'm a little old fashioned not for a woman for a woman's sake but if this woman has got it I will uh, and, and of course Stein his crowd uh, they'll run it but I bet she does a good job. Well and, and it, but it's a perfect place it's three yeah. three person three board. people with with the strong man running it. But, well, that's right and with no operating responsibility. That's right. So uh, I would that's think right. it'd, be a, it'd be a great spot for it, all yeah. things considered. Well, I I won't. Uh, I'll keep you uh, I'll keep in the phone, and I'll. Uh, oh, I uh, if you got a minute, I'll. Yeah, <laughs> we had you pick up the paper you're reading. Uh, you missed one of the most interesting things. We had the Ray Khanna singers, and before the as they came out on the stage, uh, <clears throat> one uh, girl with the you know, hair down to her waist. Uh, they're about sixteen singers. And they're all pretty girls and nice-looking guys and so forth. The Kana singers are kind of square types of it. And she stepped out, stepped out in front of them. I mean, to the shock of everybody, and hung out a homemade sign on cloth saying "Stop the killing." And she says, "Mr. President, stop the killing. If you believe in Jesus Christ, stop the killing of men and animals and children and, and Vietnam." And she said, uh, and then she said, "God bless uh, uh, Daniel Ellsberg. God bless the Berrigan brothers." Uh, and then step back. Well, you can't imagine the shock in the you, know, you remember the Earth that kept Are things. you serious? Yeah. You read it in the Post this morning, and even there, it's a, it's a, it's. And the audience. Well, then what happened is, poor Ray Conniff came out and on his and and they had their first number, and there was icy coldness. Nobody in that crowd. I clapped, of course, but very few. And Conniff says, "I just want you to know that that uh, I I didn't plan that first act." And he says, "We're." All of most of us are proud to be here at the White House and so forth. And then somebody in the in the crowd, I think it was old Jack Mulcahy, says, "Well, then act like it." And then, and then I, somebody else back in the room, to my utter amazement, said, "Throw the bum out, throw her out." And then several people said, "Throw her out." So Con and Conniff, on his own, asked her to leave, and she left. <laughs> You don't mean it. This way, this happened at the White House last night. Now, you tell Nellie what you missed. <laughs> That's the damnedest thing. But can you imagine, uh, I asked Manola, you know, about it. You know, I always get, he's my man to check. I said, Manola, what do you, what do you think? He said, you know, I heard it about your, about your, about in the 7 o'clock news. Now, this you can pass to Nellie, but clean it up a little. You know, the Spanish have wonderful uh, profanity. And uh, she says she's an hija de puta. And uh, I I know what that means. That means a, that means a daughter of a whore. Uh -huh. And he says, no, she's worse. She says, muchisima puta. She says, a great big whore. And, <laughs> and, and, uh, and he said, she acted like a streetwalker. Isn't that interesting? Really but I, I don't know what the heck they're coming to. But well, that's the damnedest thing I ever heard uh, of. Yeah. Uh, Nelly just threw the paper down and he said, tell the president it's a good thing I wasn't there. <laughs> That I would have personally taken her own, but it would have been oh, fair. Yep, I'm telling you, they, uh, they were, several of them were ready. But, uh, oh, so I just sat and smiled. And, oh, I did one thing at the end. I think you appreciate. I didn't didn't pay a bit of attention. Of course, I couldn't. And at the end, though, I walked up and thanked Ray Conniff, and and then I turned to the other girls and I said, "We were so enjoyed your music, and you. It's always nice to have our music look so pretty, you know, because they were pretty girls." And then I turned to the audience and I said, "We hope that." Ray Conniff will have great success in the next 50 as their ears as the 
Swedish Digest has in the last 50 years. And then it says, in thanking him and his very fine orchestral group, I know too that because the Marine Orchestra had played the accompaniment, that all of us would want to express our appreciation and our thanks to the fine Marines who have played accompaniment, most of whom have fought for America and Vietnam. Boy, the place came apart. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> so I had a little confrontation, John. But what do, what do you what do you think? Of course, I was worried, John, I, about about Conniff ordering her out, because and I almost got up. I told Pat later, almost got up to think maybe I better stop him. But I was afraid if I tried to stop her that, that, that I didn't know the whole group. I thought maybe the whole damn group was going to walk out, and uh, but they didn't. They, all of the rest of them were in tears and they were apologetic because she's not a regular member of the group. They were one short, and he brought her in. Well, I'll be damned. No, I think I, that's all you could do. I would. Uh, you wouldn't have stopped her from no, being thrown no, out. No. See, kind of threw her out. We didn't. But he he invited her to leave. Well, that's fine. But you. But they they. Uh, uh, I think that's fine because if you hadn't, I think. Uh, I think the whole thing would have really fallen apart. Oh, it would have. It was the been. Audience would have been icy throughout the oh, performance. They wouldn't have applauded for anything. Oh, it was awful that first number. Awful. And, uh, well, well, anyway, anyway. I must say, I'm I'm yeah. astounded. Now you give uh, you give Nellie a little tell tell her about Manolo's swear words. That'll cheer her up. Okay. <laughs> All right, sir. Okay. Well, get well. Are you Goodbye. you'll go up to Camp David? Well, I'm going to stay here today till about noon, and. Uh, He's in town, isn't he? He is. He was here uh, tonight. Oh, he was there. By golly, yes. And uh, Billy and Ruth both. Call him this morning. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I wish you would because he's here. And uh, oh, there was quite a gang. Bob Hope was there, and he spoke. And uh, oh, we had we really had a gang. Billy spoke. Norman Peel did. It was a good old time religion. Well, I'm sure. Sorry, we missed. Well, anyway, you just you just take care. Take care now. You and you and Nellie, and uh, we're. Uh, to uh, tell her, you know, we're all ready for that big party in Texas. <laughs> Incidentally, on that, we do not have to worry about the date of the Latin thing because Rogers, in checking with those fellows, found that they would prefer to come to Washington. Oh, so that leaves us completely open. And so oh, well, what I would like for you all to do is to pick the date that fits your weather the best. All right, that's great. And if it's, Nellie was saying May 1st, but if... Uh, if April 15th or May 15th is better, we can do it any time. So if we push it, it'll be toward the 1st of June. That's, in other words, it's be, it gets better later in the year. Well, that'd be better for us, actually, because as we get, then, then we're a little closer to Moscow, you know, and everybody will be, you know, up, you know that'll, it'll be nice to talk to the folks a little about the trip and so right. forth. So so you'd rather have it the latter part of May rather than the... Good. All right, we'll hold it. Bye. Thanks.
Thank you for listening to Bridging the Political Gap. If you've liked what you've heard, please share it. And we would love to hear from you and your thoughts on, on our show. So if you'd like to, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, thanks again, and so long for now.